Welcome back, you guys. This is week 11 of Creative Come Follow Me for the New Testament. And this week, we're only in two books. So we'll be in Matthew and Luke. We're going to cover Matthew 11 and 12, and then Luke 11. And I think the common theme between them is about finding rest. But interestingly, most of the people he tries to teach it to don't accept the invitation. <laughs> they, most of the people he will teach this week are scribes and Pharisees. And I think it's really interesting to see how he's continually inviting them to set down these burdens of discipleship. I think he can see the weight on their shoulders that they have self-imposed, and he's trying to give them peace. It's amazing to me because the scribes and the Pharisees continually reject the Savior. They make his life harder. Some of them even like conspire to destroy him. None of them, for the most part, are friendly to the Savior, but he wants to heal them the same way he wants to heal someone who is know, stuck with leprosy or dealing with an issue of blood, he sees the weight and the burden on them and he wants to relieve it. And what I particularly love about these messages for me is I feel like it's an invitation to look at my discipleship and see where it feels heavy and then find ways to turn to him in order to find rest. A lot of what he's going to teach them is about turning back to him and taking his yoke upon them and pulling in his way. And if they'll go in his way, there is peace and there is rest. But that means they're going to have to set down a lot of tradition and a lot of history. What's tricky about that is it's pretty deeply ingrained. It reminded me of when I was a volleyball coach for my girls. Even though I coached at like a fifth and sixth grade level where no one knew what they were doing, inevitably, inevitably there was somebody on the team, like one, maybe two girls who'd played volleyball just enough in order to feel like they were capable and confident. As a coach, I would take 20 girls who knew nothing about volleyball over one or two who think they know about volleyball because it's so much harder to get people to set aside what they think they know in order to see differently. And that's what the Savior is going to try to do over and over again. He sees their burdens. He sees the strain it's causing on them. And he sees the ramifications in the people who are following their guidance. And he's saying, set it down. It's time to find real rest. And I think it's an invitation that applies to all of us. So grab your scriptures, grab your notes. You guys, there is so much goodness in this week's study. Let's get started. In Matthew 11, you're going to see that John the Baptist, who is in prison in Machairus, sends two of his disciples to go see the works of the Savior. So you can see in verse 2, he's heard about the works of Christ, and he sends his disciples to go see it for themselves. I should warn you, when you go study scholarship on this, there's sort of a debate about why he sends these disciples out. Some believe that he sends them because there is some sort of crisis of faith happening in John, and he's worried that the Savior, because he has not been released from prison, isn't moving fast enough. It just doesn't track with the John that we've studied so far. So I'm a little bit more in the other camp of that maybe he sent these disciples out so they could get their own witness. It's possible, though, that it's also another reason. Do you remember when we were studying about the temptations of Satan with the Savior? And after the temptations pass, there's this verse about how he, the angels were sent to minister unto the Savior to buoy him up. And when you read the Joseph Smith translation, it said that he actually sent those on to John, like this, almost redirecting them, saying, take care of John first in prison. And I, when I read these verses about his disciples relaying a message back and forth to John, that's how I take it. I think for whatever reason, John needs to stay in prison. 
which must be incredibly hard for John. Because there's a lot of scriptural precedent about prison walls opening or crumbling or people being pulled out of prison in remarkable circumstances, there's a lot of reasons he might have hope that his his time in prison is going to be cut short and he can be out. And for whatever reason, those prison walls don't crumble. And I wonder if these disciples being able to go back and tell John why it's worth it is some kind of a balm of Gilead for him. I mean, think of the stories they say. So it says, when they go, Jesus tells them in verse four, Jesus answered and said unto them, go and show John again these things which you do hear and see. Where other people experience the miracles of the Savior and are told not to tell anyone, these are told to like, go and tell him everything. (laughs) You know, I think the Savior knows how hard John's life is in prison and he knows he can't pull him out for whatever reason. And so he chooses to bless him in a whole bunch of other ways. And a big one will be to help him hear the stories firsthand from people who have seen them. I mean, can you imagine what a lift that would be to John in prison? And I just think the way he speaks about John tells me of his love for him and his respect for his faith. So if you look in the verses, he says he was more than a prophet in nine. And in 11, verily I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Wherever he is, if he's struggling and having a liberty jail type moment and worrying about where art thou God, or if he is sending disciples on to get their own witness of the Savior, or if the Savior's just trying to give him comfort. What I love about this is even though the body of John the Baptist, for whatever reason, can't leave that jail, his testimony bursts out. And he didn't need a miracle for that to happen. He sends disciples out already believing and having faith. His testimony that has impacted all the people that Jesus is helping and healing, a lot of them were converts under John the Baptist. So his power and his testimony is pushing out of those prison walls, even though his body can't be contained and or his body is contained. And sometimes I think that's why he lets us stay in adversity. I think it's a way to, to test your mettle, you know, to see, will you still testify when you're confined to this prison of sorts, whether it be a physical ailment you deal with or a mental one or a social struggle, whatever it is, sometimes I think he lets us stay in those walls to see if our testimony will still reverberate out. And in John the Baptist's case, it does. His powerful witness still stands strong and he is still called no one greater. You know, he, he is, there is no one greater than John the Baptist. That's a pretty high praise coming from the Savior. Um, I also love what you see in 15. Basically, he invites all who have ears to hear, let them hear. The reason I like this is there were a bunch of quotes in the notes. I put a few in the notes, but I, there is something about hearing a witness that is a kickstart of faith and testimony. Different than seeing something miraculous, hearing others say it is something that can open up channels of revelation. I think you see this a lot in the Book of Mormon. So you see people like Enos and Alma the Younger who heard the witness of their fathers and in a moment when they needed it, those words came back to them. That hearing seems to have power. What I love is as a parent, it didn't seem to matter if they were eagerly listening to it at the time it was said. You know, I don't think Alma Sr., I don't think Alma the Younger was on the front row when his dad was preaching the gospel about the atonement. I, th- I picture him like on the back row, rolling his eyes, like annoyed that he's even there. But what's powerful to me is in the moment when he needs it, 
his father's words are brought back to him and he remembers. Sometimes I wonder if the reason Jesus encourages us to hear first is because something about that experience stays. And when it is needed, the spirit can call it back to our remembrance. So I really love that he starts with those who have ears to hear. When you go a little bit further, he's going to talk about cities that he's going to visit. These are cities that have seen some pretty epic miracles. So you can see him in 21, 22, and 23. He talks about Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum. They've seen some pretty remarkable miracles, and they are choosing not to repent overall in the city. And what he basically says is, if some wicked cities of the past had experienced what you guys have experienced, they would have been in sackcloth and ashes by now. What is wrong? Why can't you see what is right in front of you? And I think to me, the biggest reminder was that I need to watch for miracles and trust, maybe even understand that I'm going to be held accountable for them. Whether I choose to witness them or see them or tell others about them, at some point I'm accountable for the miracles that God put into my life. So it made me have this desire to open my eyes to them, to seek out miracles and watch for them. Because I think I'm accountable for them, whether I acknowledge they're there or not. And that's kind of what I learned from these cities. When you flip the page, you'll see some guidance about the wise and the prudent. So I think the Savior in these chapters is repeatedly talking about the goodness of the gospel and that people are rejecting it. And he says basically to his Father in heaven that he's grateful that the goodness of the gospel is going to the humble. He calls them babes and not necessarily to the wise and the prudent. It's just that there's some quotes in the notes if you go and you can learn about secular wisdom and spiritual wisdom. One of my favorites, I think it was from President Kimball. He talked about how both are important. Secular understanding and spiritual understanding are both important. But that secular understanding that we gain in this life is designed to help us in the next one. And we can't actually utilize that knowledge unless we have the spiritual witness first. Unless my testimony and my devotion to God is in line, then all that secular knowledge I've built up actually won't help me in any way. But if I'm a disciple of Christ, if I get on this covenant path and I I get to that next place, then all of a sudden I can use all that secular knowledge to do pretty incredible things. So I love the, the order of things. When you go a little bit further in the chapter, you hear this witness. So basically in 27, well, I'll just read it to you. It says, all things are delivered unto me of my father and no man knoweth the son, but the father, neither knoweth any man, the father, save the son and he to whomever the son will reveal him. It almost sounds like a riddle. Like you have to slow, <laughs> slow down to read it. But I think why it's really important is because of the verses that come next. This is when he's going to invite the scribes and the Pharisees and honestly, anyone who will hear to come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. Because what he's taught us in the verse before, in verse 27, is that in order to understand God the Father, in order to feel a kinship and a relationship with your Heavenly Father, it has to come through Jesus Christ. The only way that happens is through covenants. So when he talks about, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, I don't think it's just about coming and laying your burdens before him. It's coming and making this covenant connection. When you choose to make a covenant connection, there's a relationship, and that's how you can gain access to knowing God the Father. We could talk for hours about 28 and 29, but I really love breaking them down and reading them separately, especially going the notes. You can see some beautiful talks from conference about these verses, but I loved reading it with a covenant lens because I think what he's trying to say here is 
Sometimes this is how I picture it. When I picture that phrase, come on to me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I picture almost like I'm going to take all the burdens that I've got, all the struggles that I'm dealing with. And if I just come and yoke in with the Savior, he will help me pull them. And what I've learned about covenants, especially studying this year, is that when you come to the Lord to get in his yoke, something has to happen first. There is a time when you have to give place. The visual that kept coming to mind was Jason and cleaning out our kids' backpacks. So Jason has this thing where randomly he will, when he sees the kids carrying backpacks that are ridiculously heavy, like you can see Jack sometimes when he was in high school, he would have a backpack that would extend like a foot and a half off of his back. And so Jason would help him maybe once a quarter or so, and he would go through it. And he'd pull out the 57 markers that Jack packed and the 14 chargers that he had and all this stuff. And he would help him purge all the stuff that he didn't need and reorient the things that he did need so that he could carry that weight better. That's what I think of when I think about this idea of covenantal connection by coming to him. It means if I'm making covenants with him, some of the things he's going to see me carrying, he's going to say, Maria, set those down. Like, I want to help you. I want to lift your burdens. I want to pull with you. You're pulling things that you don't need to pull. So set some things down. It's what he shows Peter when he asks him to set down his nets and shift focus to something else. It's the same invitation he gives to us. When we make covenants with the Lord, it is not just taking his strength and, you know, using it. What he will do in that covenant moment is say, here's some things you need to sacrifice. And now here's what you can do to consecrate. It's this, there's more to that. It's a allowing him to purge my giant cart so that I can pull with him better. And then when you go into 29, you can see it a little deeper. It says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. What I love about that phrase is, I just, there's something very promising about the Savior's yoke that, you know, I loved, I think it was a BYU devotional I heard years ago. They talked about him being the son of a carpenter, and that if he was going to make a yoke, it would be custom fit to my shoulders. And that's how I read this verse. He says, take my yoke upon you, make covenants with me, take the burdens that I'm going to give you through these covenants, and you'll see how they make everything easier. What I love about that is that's exactly what President Nelson just taught us in conference, that actually your life gets easier as you make covenants with the Lord, not because your burdens are necessarily lighter, but because it blesses you with power. Those covenants endow you with power, which is what allows you to pull with more strength and, and endure it well. So that's what he's offering. Take my yoke upon you, learn of me, for I am meek and lowly at heart. I think both those things are important. When we take on this yoke of the Savior, we have to have the humility to learn, to walk as he did, to pack our backpack the way he packs it so that our burdens actually become lighter in this, in this epic pull. And when we do, we find rest. So the promise for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. His yoke is those, the words of his gospel, the promise of his gospel. It is easy and it is light if we pull it in his way. If I start to get off track and I try to pull in my way, it becomes burdensome and heavy. But when I pull in his way, it feels light. And there's a great promise in that verse. Go in the notes, you can learn a whole bunch more. I think one of the ways the Savior tries to make our burdens feel light, especially when it comes to the Pharisees in his day, is he tries to help them understand and utilize the Sabbath day, that it was intended to be a day of rest. 
a rest from their labors and a chance to take on his. Because what the prophet taught us is as we take on the Savior's labors, our burdens actually feel lighter. We're stronger in the process. So you can see him trying to teach that to the Pharisees with this experience in the field of grain. So his disciples are going through this field. We've read it a couple of different places now where they consume some of the grain as they walk on the Sabbath and the Pharisees get all over them and say that they're breaking the laws. And what the Savior seems to reprimand them for is not so much about their fixation on the law as in what they're missing in the process. So you can see it in seven. But if he had known what this meaneth, I will have mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. I think what he's trying to say is you're wasting your energy. Like you're so worried about these boundaries and these rules, these oral traditions that you've set up, that you're missing a chance to connect. What they're sacrificing on this altar that they think is so pious is a connection with other people. They're so worried about perfection and they're so worried about keeping these rules and making sure others keep them that they've missed the mark. The reason that sunk in a little deep for me is I think I get into this mindset sometimes where I am so focused as a parent on the rules of Sunday and what the boundaries are in our house on Sunday that sometimes I forget to put the focus on why we have boundaries in the first place. That the reason we change the way our house sounds and feels and you know, the reason we change the experience on the Sabbath is so that we can make place for good things. It can't just be about what we give up. It has to be about what we give for. The reason we give up some kinds of music and some kinds of TV and other things is so that we have energy and time and space to do good. And that I think is the same thing the Savior is trying to teach them. He's like, because you're so busy, you have so many weights in your bag about following the rules and making sure others follow them, you're missing chances to really feel the burdens lighter. One of the ways I think the Savior demonstrates that burdens can feel lighter is by taking an opportunity to heal and to lift and to take care of the withered hand of a man. We've seen it in a few different places, but one of the things that Matthew adds in this particular account is he talks about the comparison with sheep. So if you look in the verses around 11, he says, And what man shall there be among you that say you'll have one sheep, and if it fall into a pit on the Sabbath day, will he not lay hold on it and lift it out? They're asking if it's lawful to heal on the Sabbath. And he's like, you already have a compassionate heart. You have compassion on animals. You need to take that same compassion that you feel for animals and apply it to your fellow men. That's how you can honor the Sabbath. And if you do that, you'll find rest. I mean, think about the energy that you waste in fixating on the rules. If you, instead you can help redirect attention to what good we can do, there's rest in that. And so he shows them, he demonstrates it. He takes the man who has the withered hand and doesn't even touch him and he is healed. His hand is restored whole. Interestingly, though, the reaction of the Pharisees is not a warm one. In fact, it angers them to the point that they form a council against him. You can see that in 14. What I think is really instructive is what the Savior does about that. He knows that there's a council forming. He knows that they have an intent to destroy him. And what he does in 15 is he withdraws. He withdraws from them. He's given them an invitation. He's tried to teach. They rejected it. So he withdraws. It seems like the same thing he taught us last week with that village in Samaria. Remember the one that the sons of thunder wanted to burn with fire? And he basically said, like, let's go to the next village. I think that's kind of what he does here. Because no matter where he goes, he does the same thing. You can see in 15, he multitudes follow him and he heals them all. That's the Savior's character. That's what he does on the Sabbath. And he will continue to do it. There are many miracles that happen on the Sabbath. Because this is a day for mercy, not just a day for sacrifice. 
what I really like about that teaching is it helps me not get bitter. <laughs> Sometimes when I'm focused on what I'm giving up for the gospel, not just on the Sabbath day, but any day, if I start to fixate on what I'm giving up, bitterness starts, starts to kind of like well up in my heart. If instead I can force myself to think about what I'm, who I'm giving it to and why, then those burdens feel lighter. The same callings, the same difficulties, the same weights feel lighter when I focus on who that sacrifice is for and why it's worth it. So I think he's trying to teach that same thing to the Pharisees. They just didn't quite hear it. One of the phrases I love from President Nelson's talk is when he says, it's actually more exhausting to try and find happiness in a place where you can never accomplish it. I think it's the same thing the Savior's trying to teach the Pharisees in this second half of Matthew 12. He's basically saying, pick a team. There, there's a healing that occurs, healing 22. He heals someone who is blind and dumb. And then that person speaks and sees and everyone witnesses it and they're amazed. And then the Pharisees, instead of seeing the miracle and trusting in it, they pivot and they start to accuse him of using evil sources to fuel his powers. Which is an interesting strategy. They're going to come up with a few different tactics. What's sad about it is I think he's actually trying to give them rest. I think, remember in the Old Testament when we studied about halting between two opinions, and it was this idea of like a bird bouncing from one branch to the other, using its energy but accomplishing nothing? I think that's what he's trying to teach them. He's like, if I am who I say I am, and I must be, because a house can't divide itself, I can't cast out a devil if I'm of the devil, then come and trust and learn. So what he says in 28, but if I cast out devils by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is come unto you. Meaning you are the children of the promise. If I am who I say I am, come and worship, let's go. And they just don't get there. And he takes it to the next level by talking about gathering and scattering. So in 30, he says, he that is not with me is against me. And he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. I thought this was an interesting phrasing, because I've often thought about the great gathering and how all of us are invited to be a part of this, the greatest work that's on the earth today. I never had really processed the idea that if I am choosing to abstain from the gathering, I am by default scattering. Because when we came to this earth, when we came to this mortal life, we left neutral ground. When I took, when I, you know, participated in covenants, even at baptism, I left neutral ground. I am now either working towards God or I'm working against him. And that's what he's teaching the Pharisees. He's like, you could get rest if you would stop trying to bounce between these branches of pleasing men and pleasing God. And the same thing applies to me. It is exhausting to try to be appealing to the world's opinions and try and be diligent to God. It's, you can't find joy there. The only way you can seek joy is to turn to God's doctrine first and then let that dictate how you interact with the world. So I think he's trying to help them set down that burden and take his yoke, which is this clear focus. They just don't accept it. When you go a little bit further, you're going to see his warnings about idle words. I really liked that turn of phrase because I think it's the same message he was just teaching them earlier. He's basically saying, you know, if you think about a car that idles, a car that's idling is using energy, using fuel, but not getting anywhere. And I think that's what idle words are. It's that you're wasting time here. You're not, even if you feel like you're neutral and you're not involved, you know, like let's say you see a post on social media and it's derogatory to the church in some way. I am, I'm not neutral if I don't comment. Sometimes I get that impression in my mind that I can just abstain and be neutral. And what he's saying is 
you're idling. You're, you're choosing to use your energy and you're not getting anywhere. So pick a team, pick the team and come because we already know how this game ends. We already know who the victor is. Come and let your, let your words be for something because the warning in the verses is that your words will condemn you. So if you look in 36, but I say unto you that every idle word that men speak, that they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. Everything we say, whether it be towards God or against him, we're accountable for. And then 37, for by thy words shall thou be justified, and by thy words shall thou be condemned. I think it's a clear warning to use our time here on earth to prepare to meet God. You know, I've always read that as a phrase that's like, try to get your life in order. But I also think it's an invitation to appreciate what that meeting is going to be like and the things that we're going to go over in that meeting and prepare to meet him by changing course. If I'm off, if my words are idle, if I'm in this neutral space, because I can't decide how I can please both, his invitation is to get on the right track, go on the right team and trust. And it will clarify a lot of things down the road. And then they start to seek for a sign, which is really interesting because they've seen amazing signs already. I mean, people have been raised from the dead. Hands have been healed in front of them without even touching them. People have been healed at a distance. They've seen plenty of signs, but they don't see them. And so he talks about how they are evil and adulterous, which I thought was a really interesting word choice. That's in verse 39. So I started to study that a little bit to try and understand why he uses the word adulterous to talk about sign seeking. And there was this really good talk from Neil A. Maxwell. It's in the notes, but he talked about how adulterous spiritually adulterous people seek physical proof of things that they need to touch and hear and see things firsthand for themselves. It's almost the opposite of what we saw with John the Baptist in prison, where he will rest on the testimonies of others, but he doesn't need to see it with his own eyes. He can trust that it's real. When you're adulterous spiritually, it means you're so focused on what is tangible that you miss the mark. I think we see this a little bit with Thomas, you know, when the resurrected savior comes back and Thomas didn't get a chance to touch him or see him when the other apostles did. And so he doubts. And then, you know, eight days later when the savior comes again, he gets an experience and he gets to handle the savior. And what the savior teaches him in that moment is, you know, blessed are they that have not seen and have yet believed. There is something deeper and more lasting if we don't seek signs, if we trust the way John did in prison, that We don't have to see it with our own eyes to know that it's true. And I just think there's power in that promise that your witness comes from the Holy Ghost, not from what you see in the outside world. Then he talks about the sign that they are going to get is this sign of Jonah, which basically is an analogy of sorts, a metaphor that he's saying, what you will see, what will be evidence to you is that I will go in a tomb for three days like Jonah went in the whale for three days and I will come out of it just like Jonah did. But the only problem they'll have is that that by the time they see that sign, it will be too late. In fact, in Elder Holland's words, it's everlastingly too late because they've missed their chance to come unto him and to follow him. By that point, he's gone and they've they've missed it. So I, you almost hear him pleading with them to come. And so then when you go a little bit further, you see that guidance that we talked about last time about how his mother and his brethren are nearby and people say, you know, like, your mom and your brothers are out there. Do you want to bring them in? And he says, my mother and my brothers are here. Anyone who comes unto Christ and does what I've asked is part of my family. What I really liked about this is 
when you connect it with what you're reading in Ephesians. So in Ephesians 2.19, this is the part where it says, you know, there'll be no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. When you make covenants with God, when you come unto him in that way, you are of his household. You are just the same as his actual family. And I think there's power and promise in that deal. Another key way the Savior seeks to give his disciples and anyone who will listen rest is by teaching them how to pray. It's the same thing he teaches us, that as we come to understand how to communicate with God the Father, we find rest unto our souls. So he demonstrates it for them. This is where you're going to see a snippet of the Lord's Prayer that we've studied before. But I actually love what happens before the Lord's Prayer. So if you look in verse 1, it says, One of the disciples comes to him and says, Lord, teach us to pray. To me, this is childlike humility. You know, he's been teaching them that this is what the kingdom of God is. It's like having the view like a child does of saying, I want to start from scratch. I'm, I'm coming to this practice with you, coach, and I want to just start with a clean slate. Teach me how to pray. I think it's the same thing. He's going to teach them how to share. He's going to teach them how to play nice. You know, like all those childlike characteristics, he's going to demonstrate for them. And he does that with the Lord's Prayer. I do particularly love the beginning of the Lord's Prayer, where it says, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The distinction that your Father in heaven is apart from you, but that you can have instant communication with him is really weighty to me. There's a quote in the notes from Sister Dalton. I think she was quoting Neil A. Maxwell, but she talked about how he knows your name. This master of the universes knows your name and is aware of your needs. And I think there's a bit of a reminder in that when you think about how he is in heaven, as the way the Savior phrases it. Then he teaches about thy will be done. This understanding that the Savior is using his agency to honor God the Father's will. The same way he invites us to do the same thing, to use our agency and put it on the altar. He demonstrates that for us in his prayer. In particular, I really love three. Give us this day our daily bread. We talked about this last time, but in the live after last time, I added something that I thought maybe needed some time here, but I have really loved this idea of daily bread being an invitation to pray small. For me, this is a way I keep a, a relationship with the Lord is to pray small. Throughout Jason's illness, it's been really tempting to pray big, to pray for big miracles. In fact, most people Pray for Jason for big miracles. What gets tricky about those big miracle prayers is sometimes they can add weight to Jason's shoulders because he almost feels apologetic that he hasn't been healed. I mean, I, he has total faith in the Lord's plan and knows that what is supposed to happen will happen. But it is hard sometimes when we only pray for those big things. What I love about this concept of daily bread, I think he's trying to invite us to pray small. So one of the ways I found this works for me is instead of praying for healing all the time, I've started to pray for smaller things like, what does he need today? You know, like when we were in the infusion lab, I would pray about what does he need tonight? What will he need? Which doctor should I talk to? Which nurse could I stop to find out what he needs today? What could I do today to lift his burdens? When I started to pray small in these daily bread prayers, I got answers more readily and then I could feast on that relationship. When I only prayed big, I didn't get opportunities to, you know, that miracle hasn't happened for us. So I didn't get a chance to have a 
a comforting relationship with the Lord. When I started to pray small, I actually saw answers to those prayers come quickly and sometimes multiple in a day where I felt like he answered my prayer in this small way. And so I could feel rest. I could feel assured. And it didn't put any weight on Jason because he knew that those little prayers could be answered. Even if the healing miracle that so many others are praying for doesn't get answered, knowing that God is watching over us because these little prayers are answered made a world of difference. So I think daily bread is about praying small. He also invites you to forgive our sins for we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us. I was listening, went to a stake relief study activity recently, and there was a woman who spoke about her brother who has an addiction problem with drugs. And she, the way she spoke about him, I wish, I wish she could have heard it because the way she talked, it was like she had forgiven him, even though he hasn't changed yet. She spoke of him with a sadness, like a, she wishes he could have the happiness he deserves, but there is this obstacle in the way. And she spoke of him with such love and such heart that you could tell that she had already forgiven him for offenses he hasn't even committed yet. She's intending always to have a forgiving heart when it comes to her brother. And that changed the way I read that. I think it's this invitation to not wait until resolutions happen, but to choose to have a forgiving heart no matter what the circumstances are. So I think that might be part of what he means by forgive us our sins for we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us. And then when you go a little bit further, you see this interesting parable about friends. Okay, this one I had to take some time on. If you go on the Joseph Smith translation, you can see that this parable, what he says right before it is this is a parable about asking and praying to God that you can get answers and get the help you need. The reason I think that's interesting is the way the parable plays out. So this is a parable about three friends. Basically, the first friend has another friend who comes in the middle of the night unexpectedly and is hungry. And so the person who is the host of the house doesn't have any food for him available in his house. So he goes to the third friend's house and knocks on the door at midnight and says, I have a friend who unexpectedly came over. Can you give us some bread? And the first reaction of the person who has the bread is, it's really late and the doors are already locked and the children are in bed. And the, the friend who is knocking on his door is persistent. In fact, the word he uses is he importunes him. He, it's, it's this persistent knocking. And because of their friendship and because of the persistent knocking, the man who has the bread, you know, opens up his house and gives him everything he needs. And then that bread, of course, goes to the original traveler who needed it. What I love about this parable, I'd never studied it before. And I think it's teaching us about how God wants to answer our prayers. That the Savior is that middleman. That we often come to the Savior seeking bread at midnight. We're an unexpected visitor. We come out of nowhere and he, when he sees that we need something, immediately rushes out. Even though it's midnight, he immediately rushes to be our advocate with the Father. And he goes and he knocks on the Father's door. And he keeps knocking until those doors open and we get the bread that we need. I don't know that this is the right interpretation of this parable, but what I loved about it for me was I felt like the Spirit was trying to tell me that the reason you can trust that when you ask and seek and knock, that all doors will be opened. In fact, that's what the verses say if you go in 9 and 10. And I say unto you, ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth, he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. The reason I think I can trust that those promises are real is because it maybe isn't me knocking. <laughs> you know, I, the Savior is the one promising that he will go and he will knock on the doors of, 
our Father in heaven and and get us the bread that we need because our Father in heaven wants to give it to us. He is our advocate with the Father. And the promise is he trusts that that door will always open. So we should trust. There was just something about the visual of instead of me bloodying my knuckles on the door of heaven, this understanding that the Savior does it for us, that he is our advocate and he will make sure that we get what we need because he knows the character of God the Father and he knows that bread is coming. And I just, there was something about that parable that I just loved studying this week. So go slow through those verses. But I think the invitation is to ask and seek and knock, be a seeker like he's invited us to do. And then he talks about good gifts. So remember how we talked about stones and bread? That comes right after these invitations to ask and seek and knock. This is when he tells him, if your father, if you on earth give good gifts, your heavenly father knows how to give you good gifts. Trust that there is ample bread. Trust that I will help you find it. Just ask, begin. And that's his invitation to find rest. When we choose to trust in that process and trust that no matter how late the hour, when we turn to the Savior and ask for his help, he will get it for us. He will find it. There's something in that promise that will give us rest. Recently, President Nelson invited us to take charge of our testimonies. And I think the main motivation for that is so that when we encounter the commotion of the world or even questions about gospel understandings that we don't get carried away on winds of doctrine. That's sort of what you see happen with the people in the middle of chapter 11. You see them wonder. So a miracle occurs. So you can see in verse 14 that he was casting out a devil out of a man who was already dumb and the devil goes out and they start to wonder. The phrase they wondered kind of jumped out at me because I think what happens is now they're at a position where their interest is peaked and they have two choices. They can either ask and seek and knock and go through that process of coming to know for themselves about the nature of this miracle, or they can stay wondering. And then what tends to happen is you get carried by the popular opinion around you. And in this case, it's the Pharisees teaching about the source of this miracle. I think it's why we need to be so centered in what we know is true. So that when we're in these kind of circumstances, even if there are, you know, modern day Pharisees teaching us false doctrines, we can feel assured. We can know where we can turn for truth. And so I think there's a guidance in there for all of us. When you go a little bit further, you see an additional guidance that's in Luke that you don't see in Matthew, and it's about not worshiping people. So when you look in 28 and 27, basically a woman comes to the Savior and praises Mary for bringing him into the world. And what he comes back at her with is not that Mary isn't worthy of you know, admiration, but that that is not what they, she should be focused on. So he says in 28, but he said, yea, rather blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. I don't think the Savior ever wants us to worship people or places or things. Our worship is supposed to be devoted to God and his gospel. So even though he loves his mother and he honors his mother, he's trying to make sure that our worship and our focus is never about the people. The same way we don't worship prophets and we don't worship or follow the missionaries that converted us. We worship Jesus Christ. We worship God the Father. And that's that's the line I think he's trying to delineate. Then you see them seeking signs again, and you get a lot of the same guidance we saw before. But one of the additions that you have in Luke that you didn't get in Matthew is this understanding about a candle and a bushel. So if you look in 33, no man, when he hath lighted a candle, put it in a secret place, neither under a bushel, but on a candlestick, that they which come in may see the light. The phrasing is a little bit different in this Luke account, but I kind of love it. I love that it says, they that come in, because I think it's implying that it's, we have to come to him. There has to be, we have to come 
to where he is in order to have access to this abundant light. I was actually in the temple when I was studying this verse this week, and I was thinking about the celestial room. And the, that when I was there, it was going from dusk to dark. And you could see that all the windows around me were dark, but in the celestial room, there was this bright, glorious light. And I thought about, that's the, essentially the idea of covenants, right? When we, he has this doctrine that is freely available to all who will come in. But that process of coming in requires something of us. We have to make covenants. We have to keep those covenants. And when we do, we have access to this abundant light, abundant light that fills us if we keep our eyes single. So you'll see that in 34 and 35 and then 36, this promise of a fullness of light. You can get even more on that doctrine when you go in the doctrine and covenants and see how it extends that verse. So go in the notes and you can learn a little more. Another big way we find rest is by shedding the weight of hypocrisy. <laughs> We all know what that's like. It's like if you live with an Instagram filter all the time and then you worry about trying to be that person all the time. There is an exhaustion that comes when you're trying to be something you are not. And I feel like that's what he's trying to teach this Pharisee who comes to dinner. So a Pharisee comes and he basically accuses the Savior of not going through all the rituals of cleansing that he that are expected of him. Even though it sounds like he's actually coming to where the Savior lives to come have dinner with him, he's accusing the Savior of not going through these steps. And the Savior basically says, you're worried about the wrong things. And he compares it to doing dishes. He's like, basically you're trying to make the outside of your dishes spotlessly clean and the inside of your dishes is full of, how does he say it? He says that your inward part is full of ravening and wickedness. <laughs> you know, like I've had this discussion with my kids lots of times when it comes to dishes. Like if you had to pick an area to really focus on, don't focus on the outside of the bowl. Focus on the place where the food goes. And I feel like that's basically what he's trying to teach the Pharisee. He's like, if you had to pick, pick what is within. Your Father in Heaven made both, what is outside and what is inside. So focus on both. What I love is what he teaches about how to cleanse the inner part. Because the Pharisees are pretty good about focusing on how to clean what the world can see, what their fellow men can see. What they might be struggling is with is how to clean what's on the inside. So that's when the JST comes in really handy. If you look in 41, he talks about observing to do the commandments is what actually cleanses you. There is this built-in wash cycle that the Savior has given us in the process of repentance. And as we keep his commandments and we honor our covenants, we become clean on the inside. And then by default, we can clean the outside even better. So I feel like it's this promise of if you focus on the right step first, everything else will fall into place. I'm not sure the Pharisee got it. Doesn't sound like he did, but I, the Savior teaches him anyway. Whether he thinks the Savior or whether he thinks the Pharisee will accept it or not, he just teaches. And then he shifts on and he teaches lawyers. So what's interesting about these lawyers, similar to lawyers that we read about in the Book of Mormon, is they seem to be distorting doctrine and laying grievous burdens on the people. So if you look in 46, he says, Woe unto you also, ye lawyers, for ye laid men with burdens grievous to be born. And ye yourselves touch not the burdens with one of your fingers. To me, this is almost like the opposite of take my yoke upon you and you'll find rest. Where the Savior offered to strap in with us and carry the weight of our burdens with us, these lawyers are saying, not only am I going to add to your burdens and make them heavier, but I'm not going to touch them. Like, there is a, a disconnect that, that is created in that relationship. And so he's trying to help them find rest by fixing it. And he warns about what caused their problem. He basically tells them that they are building sepulchers to prophets that they didn't honor. There is a phrase in 49 that I think is interesting. He says, I will send some of them prophets and apostles and some of them they shall slay and prosecute or persecute. I think it's interesting because in the history of the Old Testament, there are a few prophets who 
weren't listened to, right? Prophets like Isaiah, there's even prophets like Jeremiah who are persecuted. There's some that are mentioned in these verses that are slain, like Abel and Zacharias. There's, there's some heaviness here, and he's accusing them of slaying the prophets. But what I think he's inviting them to do is to listen to the current ones. When he says that they slay some of them, that means some of them they chose to listen to. What I think tends to happen with us sometimes is that we look back on previous prophets with a glossier vantage point than we do the current prophet. President Kimball said that many are prone to garnish the sepulchers of yesterday's prophets, that we tend to look longingly on those that aren't here and can't correct our current problems and sometimes cast off the guidance of our current prophets and apostles. So I think this is just a, re a reminder to me to like, I am... What I will be accountable to God for is, did I listen to my prophet, the prophet he sent to my day and my time? How did I treat his words? Not that I'm not paying attention to the ones of the past, but I can never let the ones of the past supersede my current prophet, my current guidance for my current leaders. So I think there's an invitation to keep those things in check. I have to say, I wish this chapter ended on a happier note, <laughs> but maybe there's something to that. Maybe the reason this feels heavy is because this entire week of study is all about finding ways to turn those burdens over to the Lord, following his commandments so that there can be lift. And you just feel weight when you read about the reactions of these lawyers. So you can see in 52, woe unto you lawyers, for ye have taken away the key of knowledge. Ye entered not into yourselves and them that were entering in ye hindered. Meaning, you're missing the mark. You're not going to make it into salvation. And those you are leading and guiding are also going astray. It's the same thing that we saw that happened with Zeezrom, where he distorted the doctrine. He started teaching it in his own way, and it actually caused everybody to fall off that path. So I think he's warning about that. And then he talks about how this goes. After all these efforts and all the miracles and all the attempts to help the Pharisees and the scribes understand, they still turn against him. So if you look in the verses, it says in 53, And as he said these things unto them, the scribes and the Pharisees began to urge him vehemently and to provoke him to speak many things, laying wait for him and seeking to catch something out of his mouth that they might accuse him. This is a very specific generation that they have a, a big blinder on and they miss it. But what I love about what we're learning in this week's study, even though there is heaviness to it, is that we can learn from their example. I can learn to treasure my living prophet. I can learn to show compassion instead of focus and judge others. I can learn to appreciate what the Sabbath day is supposed to feel like and be like because of what I read in these week's chapters. So my hope with all of this is that as you study and as you see where these, this generation maybe went wrong, hopefully we can choose a different path. I think it's why it's in the scriptures. It's why the Savior is trying to get us to study it and read it so that we can in these situations where we have similar frustrations, choose a different road. We can choose to ask and seek and knock and come to our own understanding of who the Savior is and why his message matters so much. Welcome back, you guys. This is the creative side of week 11. For those of you who are watching on YouTube or listening in the podcast, let me give you a quick rundown of the three object lessons. And then for those of you in the full course, just stick around and I'll help you understand how you can pull them off in your classes or in your families. I promise you're going to love this week. Okay, first and foremost, I wanted to teach the story of the man with the withered hand. We've read it in a few different weeks, but this week in particular, I liked taking some time to talk about how the man with the withered hand and that miracle helps us understand the purpose of the Sabbath day. So to do this, we have this 
epic printable for you. This is so that you can show and demonstrate what a withered hand would look like and then talk about the process that happens so that it can become healed. So for this one, you just need the printable that you can print on cardstock and then you need some drinking straws and some string. Other than that, you should have everything on hand. The second one is about understanding that beautiful verse about my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And one of my favorite ways to teach this is to use a stack of books or other awkward, heavy objects that you'll have your kids carry across the room. So you wanna get a big stack of books like this, maybe five, 10, 20, depending on how old the kid is that you're gonna demonstrate this with. And then you need something with wheels. So if you're in a home, it could be something like an office chair. If you're at church in a seminary class, you could use something even like the big piano that's in the room that has wheels underneath. So big stack of books and something with wheels. The third one, since it's food week, is focused on helping our kids understand hypocrisy and the value of not worrying so much about what the world sees and focusing in. And to do this, you're going to make what I'm calling hypocrisy pops. <laughs> Basically, they are two versions of a treat that look identical on the outside, but are very different on the inside. So we're going to take radishes and brownies, dip them in chocolate, and then talk about how even though they appear the same, they are very different within. So get all those supplies on hand and you'll be good to go. Thanks for being here, you guys. Whether you're watching this on YouTube or listening to the podcast, or you're actually in the full course, I'm grateful that you're studying. I hope you really enjoy this week. I learned a lot about how I could find rest, both from the incredible good examples of the Savior and even some of the negative ones of the scribes and the Pharisees. I think there's a lot you can gain by diving into these scriptures. So if you need extra help, pull up the notes. You can find those in the course, and they'll walk you through a lot of the prophetic commentary that we've had in the last few years to guide you through these verses. In addition, if you want to come join me on Instagram, you can pop on at 10 a.m. for the live. So I'll do a quick live for 30-40 minutes and talk through some of the insights I missed and also go in more depth in the object lessons. So if that would help you, come join me on Instagram at 10 a.m. Mountain Time. But otherwise, you guys, I hope you enjoy this week of study and you find additional ways through the help of the Spirit to find rest. We all need it. So hopefully you'll seek it out this week and find it in the scriptures. Otherwise, I hope you enjoy your week, you guys, and I will see you on Monday. Thanks again for joining me, you guys. If this content is resonating well with you, I hope you'll consider liking and subscribing, leaving a review if you can, and then also popping over to the full course. In the Creative Come Follow Me course, I provide weekly content in full videos. So full videos, the insights, videos of all three object lessons, as well as all the tools you need to support it. So within the course, you'll find professionally designed printables each week. You'll find extensive study notes so that you can go a lot deeper into the text. You'll also find three years of back content. So for since 2020 in the Book of Mormon, I've been creating weekly content and object lessons to help facilitate meaningful, memorable, simple learning. So if those are tools that would help your family or your class, I hope you'll consider subscribing. Head on over to creativecomefollowme.com. You can find sample videos, sample printables, and an option to subscribe for a month and test it out for your family and see if it's a good fit for you. I hope you enjoy it.